3: New Jersey trio Screaming Females are one of the best bare-bones rock groups of the past two decades. Their sound is both expansive in its ambition and intimate in its execution, like a gritty punk rock band dabbling in every possible style while focusing on a very particular sound that is both dissonant and harmonious. And while there has been moments in their songs where it appears that guitarist Marissa Paternoster might be tossing a few upbeats in the music. The group recently put to rest any doubts about where they stood with the genre by announcing they'd be covering The Selectors on my radio. It's part of December's deluxe edition of the comic book series What's the Furthest Place from Here, where a seven-inch of the song will be included with the comic. It releases on December 22nd. In the meantime, we brought Marissa and drummer Jared Doherty on the show to talk about this song and their relationship to the genre.
4: When was the first time you heard Screaming Females? I remember
3: hearing them back in the mid-2000s, when they were kind of breaking out, I think.
4: Yeah, I think it was kind of late 2000s. I started hearing about this band, a lot about their guitar playing. They were getting a lot of press on, like, punk news. Yeah, yeah. I would have never guessed looking at this indie rock band, that they would ever cover a ska song?
3: No. Furthest thing on my list of potential non-ska bands that would do a ska song and that we would be able to bring on the show?
4: I mean, maybe somebody like Kraftwerk. I think maybe they'd be a little bit further out from doing ska. But definitely like late 2000s, like kind of serious org core indie rock never would have pictured them doing ska.
3: Yeah. And I think they did a great job with On My Radio by The Selector.
4: Definitely. I think it just shows that deep down inside, everybody loves ska. Oh, yeah, and
3: side note, I really would love it if Kraftwerk did a ska song.
4: If anybody from Kraftwerk is listening, please record a ska song.
3: You guys recorded a song On My Radio by The Selector, which we got to hear a snippet of it. it sounds awesome. Well, I want to hear the story behind this song, why you chose it and and I know it's related to a comic book series. So I want to hear about that, too.
5: Yeah. Uh, a guy who used to hang out in New Brunswick, and would, which is where we're from, New Brunswick, New Jersey. And he released some records. He actually released a record that Marissa did the artwork on. And um, uh, he now writes comic books and actually like very famous comic books. So he hit up a bunch of bands that he's friends with or has made friends with over the years and asked if they would participate in the deluxe editions of the comic books by recording a punk song from the 80s, a cover. And they were going to do seven inches uh, to go along the deluxe editions of each of the issues of his new comic book. And I came to Mike and Marissa. I was like, hey, we got this email. You guys want to do this? And I'm like, sure. And they're like, what song should we do? And Mike immediately said, let's do a Scott song. <laughs> Nice, (laughs) and then I think that was followed up almost immediately with Marissa saying, "Let's do on my radio."
3: Yeah, great choice. I feel like on my radio is my possibly my favorite ska song. Just I feel like it's definitely a song that I would show somebody who was unfamiliar with ska that I want to say like, "This is ska right here." This song. So, is it have you have you guys long been fans of the selector slash this song?
5: Um, I mean, okay, I'll go start from the top and just say that we're probably not like the world's biggest ska fans um but i know that (laughs) uh one of marissa's all-time favorite bands growing up was no doubt so that's obviously uh big and then for me um yeah just i don't know over the years like of course you get introduced to the specials and they're like the best band ever um and then i don't even know when it was Uh, a number of years ago now i saw dance craze and uh the the documentary and saw the selector in there and was just like my mind was like blown you know um i had heard of them but just getting to see those live the live footage of uh pauline just was like wow this this band might be better than the specials
2: <laughs>
3: yeah i i think i put them above specials as well even though specials are kind of like the you know the legendary two tone band i think the selectors a little bit better Particularly, like from this, the first album, and you know, possibly a little bit the second album, but yeah, I think what they had in that first album with that specific lineup was just phenomenal. Marissa, I'm curious a little bit about your approach to singing this song. Um, you have a distinct voice. Pauline Black has a distinct voice, but I feel like the way you approached it was just perfect.
6: Thank you. Um, I can tell you that I put very little thought into it. <laughs> Almost zero. <laughs> um, we recorded it at my house in my basement with, um, like my really basic recording equipment. So I did the vocals separately later. Um, I I think I just looked out that we have a similar range, I guess. Um, I changed some of the, uh, lyrics, um, to be cheeky. Well, what did you change? Uh, some of the lyrics are like gendered about like, you know, her, her boyfriend, um, or whatever, love interest in the song, um, her baby, so to speak. Uh, so I just, I just changed them. So they, uh, were applicable to my experience. Yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, we have, uh, yeah, we have a similar range. Um, and it came out surprisingly, surprisingly good. I wasn't expecting to have such an easy time singing it. Um, there are a couple there are a couple of parts in the chorus, the falsetto parts that were like, that, there's a bunch of parts in the song, which Jarrett can probably speak to more accurately that are, are, are they in weird time signatures or is it just?
5: Yes, they are in weird, weird time signatures.
6: There's some weird moments with, uh, in the chorus with the, with time signatures. So like, I remember, I can't remember specifically what was going on, but I was singing one refrain of on my radio weird, and then when uh, Mike and Jared came over, we actually listened to it, and I I just was totally overthinking it, um, and I uh, so I just went back to what what just just emulating what whatever she did, and it came out good.
3: You talk about the chorus, the it's the same old show on my radio.
6: Yeah, it's it. There's this like, well, I don't know, Jared. You could probably explain it better than I. I mean, I know you can explain it better than I can. That it does it for a very odd amount of times. And then there's this one hit that's like on an and of like five or something. Can't really remember, but it was, it was confusing to learn for sure. That's not like my forte when it comes to playing music. I, I really stink at counting.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's a definitely um, strange sounding. Like I was like, was perplexed by the verses are very, like very poppy. And the choruses are very strange.
6: Yeah, it's it's a totally weird song. It was fun to learn. Um, and I felt like, uh, even though the chorus was difficult, it came away from learning this cover uh, a better, a little bit better of a musician, maybe.
3: Jared, break it down for us. Give us the lowdown on the, the rhythm and the time signature.
5: Oh, man, I'd have to listen to it right now to get to, to be able to tell you because it's been so long. We actually, that was something I was going to mention is that um, you know, when the, when the pandemic hit, we were on tour and we had to do this, like, you know, tour got canceled in California and we had to like drive from Oregon to LA and get home. And then me, Mike and Marissa have spent the last 15 years and spending a lot of time in the van together and practice every week and, you know, just hanging out as friends. And then we just didn't see each other for like six months or something. I forget how long it was, but The idea of getting back together and playing music was just like very daunting emotionally. And this was the first, very first thing we did before we even played like any of our own songs or anything. We recorded this cover and played this. And I feel like it was really important to get us playing together again in something that didn't rely on our own sort of historical, like emotional investment in our own songs. So I know that's not the question you asked, but that's what it made me think of was sitting down and being like, okay, here's a project I can work on figuring out the time signature of the <laughs> chorus of the selector song.
4: Was this the first experience all three of you had had with playing ska? Oh, no. Oh, let's hear about I
6: mean, it. <laughs> I mean, we're from New Jersey, so uh, it's it's pretty hard to grow up. It, w- it, it would be beyond, I think it would be impossible to grow up in New Jersey in the early aughts without encountering ska at some point in your life. Uh, If, if, even if you're just bearing witness to it. um, And then if you happen to maybe start playing music, you'll probably wind up playing ska at some point, even if it is against your will. Ska is a very popular and uh, I, I don't know about its popularity in New Jersey right now, but it was very prevalent um, in the late 90s and early aughts, especially because of the much beloved band uh, Catch 22 and, and Streetlight Manifesto. So I actually encountered like a lot of members because, you know, they had a lot of rotating members, I guess, because of the horn section. I don't really, also, please note that I don't really know that much about Scott either. So I, I know that I used to hang out at my friend's house who lived across the street from some teenage boy who was in Catch 22. And then I bought a bike from someone who played like a one of the horns in Catch Twenty Two when I was in my (laughs) twenties. And and those were all my interactions with Catch Twenty Two. And then I was just talking about how I saw the toasters by accident once. And I I feel like when I walked into the room, like everyone was like doing a (laughs) backflip.
4: Wait, so how did you accidentally see the toasters?
6: Um, they were playing at this like pay-to-play venue that was in North Jersey. That's like a total scam.
4: What's the name of the venue?
6: Uh, it was called the Bloomfield Ave Cafe. And I don't think all of the shows were paid a place. But basically, like, if you were a young kid and you wanted to play a show, you would go to the venue and they take you in a creepy back room and they would give you, like, 50 some odd tickets. And they'd be like, here are the tickets for your own show. Go sell them. And if you can't sell them, well, you guys must suck. And that's your fault. But give us $200 in advance. So, um, I think Mike and I were in our first band and we went into this place to buy tickets for our own show because we didn't know any better and the toasters were playing and there were just, a, there was a lot of just aerobic activity. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I was a lot more of a curmudgeon at that point And I, my heart was not open to like ska at all. And I was like, except I really like the slits, but I didn't understand that connection yet. And I was like, I hate this music. Like, I hate (laughs) all of this. It sounds too happy and it's making me mad.
5: (laughs) Bringing up the slits, uh, when Ari decided she was going to reform the slits, um, whenever that was like 2008 or something, uh, they recorded a demo that they kind of used to shop around to, you know, just let people know the band was back together, et cetera. So through a random series of events, Marissa ended up recording on that demo. And you're asking about Marissa playing Sky. Well, you know, it's a little more reggae influence, but there was a point, I believe, when, correct me if I'm wrong, Marissa, where Ari asked you if you could play a little bit more Jamaican.
6: Those words were unfortunately said, but Ari (laughs) didn't say it, which was like, this was like one of the weirdest days of my life still. I, I was a junior in college and I was like, they asked me to join after I had played on the demo and I was like, I can't I'm in art school. Like I couldn't do it. <laughs> um, but I went and I, and I played on the songs and I don't, I'm not going to name the engineer, but the engineer asked me if I could get more Jamaican with it. And I was like, this is about as Jamaican as I get, which is 0%. Um, and I, even at that young age, I still was, I was smart enough to know that that was offensive. And I uh, uh I I played, yeah, I play, so I played some ska, I guess. Maybe it was reggae. I don't know the difference. I mean, I know the difference, sort of. I'm really, I'm not, I don't know that much about either genre.
3: What was your connection to the band? How did you get involved to, to begin with?
6: We knew one of the engineers who was working with Ari to, like, relaunch the slits um, just through, like, childhood friendships, I guess. Right, Jar.
5: Yeah, just bands, people that I knew from playing in bands, well, they're listening to their bands and going to their shows and just randomly met this person along the way.
6: (laughs) Yeah, and I'm sure they were like, we got to get a a girl to play guitar because it's the Slits. And then I was the first person that came to mind, which was a very high honor. Indeed, I very much love the Slits. But um, yeah, I can't get any more Jamaican than not. Jamaican at all (laughs) the
3: slits um even though like dub and reggae are like definitely a a foundation of that group doesn't sound Jamaican at all to me it's a very weird band
6: yeah I mean the music I I the music that they made was just absolutely bizarre and cut is one of my favorite records of all time so I was more than happy to just even be in her presence um and I was pretty bummed out that I couldn't be in the band, but obviously I absolutely had to get my very important painting degree.
3: (laughs) So this was um, before Screaming Females then?
6: No, I was in Screaming Females. Uh, We had only been a band for like a year or two. Um, But since Screaming Females started, I mean, we all took it and have continued to take it very seriously. So fully dedicated to doing our thing but also I was you know still in school and I think Jared you might have still been in school too.
5: Yeah I don't remember exactly but I do remember that um, a lot of it came down to you were trying to see how many shows they were trying to play and when it was and the limited time you had you're like well I'm not dropping out of school for this but maybe I could do the shows and then once they started talking about doing like bigger tours you were just like if I'm going to I only had a limited amount of time to play shows while going to school and it's going to be screaming female shows. So it's not going to be slits shows.
3: <laughs> so I want to ask uh, a little bit about
5: the, go back to the selector
3: song. Do you know why Mike was all about ska
5: for this?
6: It's from New Jersey. It's in his blood.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I'd say, yeah, that Mike had the most, uh, the, like ska hit him at a perfect time, you know? Um, for his like age like the third the kind of like you know you know what i'm talking about the the kind of major label third wave ska um so he he had that like at the right time of his youth to just be really loved it and then pretty quickly he just got into like the most just just like music of an entirely <laughs> different feel um you know i we started playing when mike was seventeen so it just seemed like mike had gone through a lot of um, already like amazing kind of music influences in history by the time I met him and he was still a child. <laughs> but um so I don't know. We sit in the van, we listen to lots of different music. Um so I don't know. I think I don't even remember what it was other than Mike whenever we, we get asked to do kind of like a cover or something, Mike is is always just about like avoiding the obvious. And sometimes that's to go like even more obvious. Like when we did the Taylor Swift cover for the AV club, it was like, we were looking at the list and it was like, should we do this Velvet Underground cover and, or this other cover? And he's like, of course we would do those. Those. What's the song we wouldn't do? Let's do the Taylor Swift song. Again. No, he said,
6: we might as well do the song that everyone likes a lot already. <laughs> Which was like the (laughs) smartest thing I've ever heard a person say in in my life to date. I was just like, this man is a genius.
5: (laughs) So it's just like, when we got asked to do this, I don't know, his mind's really good at thinking, like, what are we going to do? Like a Minutemen song or like a Black Flag song or something? Like, not shitting on anybody who decided to do those songs, but like, it's just, it's just songs that you would hear a band do if you went to uh, a show and they did a cover. And you'd be like, oh yeah, hell yeah, it's you know rise above (laughs) so thinking of doing doing a uh a ska song i think it just like immediately put us on a different track and that's just kind of the way mike's mind works
3: yeah uh back to the taylor swift cover um which I, i like a lot the part i like the best about that cover is that instead of the rap breakdown you just rip a solo
6: oh yeah well the rap breakdown really stinks yeah like that's <laughs> a bad part of the song like a pop song that i think is like obviously incredibly well written and that's yeah. the only part where i i if i were for some reason in the studio i would have been like we're getting rid of that it's not good <laughs> so yeah i i think we the solo was put there in lieu of having to also having to rap i i'm i um i love hip-hop i'm not gonna try rapping <laughs> like ever
3: you'll try ska before you try rapping right
6: at well i mean yeah
3: you've already done ska
6: i've already done i've i've already mastered ska <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> the comic book you guys were mentioning um so matthew rosenberg that's the artist right
4: no he's the writer
3: the writer that's what i meant yeah so adam you know you know him or he worked with you back in the
4: yeah matt matt used to put my band up on tour he and he still dresses exactly the same. I saw an interview with him that Marvel Comics posted and he was wearing an Earth Crisis shirt and he wears the exact same clothes. It was crazy to see. So what's your relationship with Matt?
5: Yeah, really it's just it's minimal, but um he he put out a record by a band called Scream Hello, who's from um New Brunswick. And so I guess he had seen us play and just knew us from Back then, you know, 2006, 2005. um, And also, Marissa had done the artwork on that record. Um, And so he just hit us up in the email. and, And, like, I don't know, you get emails about people asking you to do various things for various projects, and you only have so much you can, so many covers you can record and that kind of thing. But When somebody hits you up and they're like, oh, yeah, I remember, you know, hanging out at the parlor in 2006 in New Brunswick, which is a house, you know, you're just like, oh, yeah, this is like, yeah, Marissa did the artwork. She knows me. We talked. I was just like, yeah, let's do it. Sounds good.
4: He didn't have any uh, say on on whether or not y'all did a ska song, right?
5: (laughs) I was kind of wondering if like if we came back when he said do a punk song from the from the 80s if we came back with ska I was like is that gonna count is it gonna be close enough and he was like sounds awesome let's do it
3: (laughs) (laughs) what you said it was the first thing you um recorded in the pandemic when when did you record it
6: uh well I guess we started having band practice like a couple maybe like two months after we kind of I feel like got sent home uh
5: (laughs) No, it was it was longer than that cuz I didn't I didn't play drums for 4 months. I remember
6: that. Yeah. I don't I don't know. It's all like a horrible nightmare fugue. Uh but uh one, not not that anything had subsided, but we had been obviously all isolated in our little pods, so we deemed it safe to practice in my very very large basement with masks on. Um and uh this just seemed like a a fun project um as something something fun to do something to kind of distract us a little bit from what was going on um and also um I I'm a big fan of comics uh Jared's a big fan of comics so it seemed like also it's a really neat it's just a really neat idea a cool pairing of things that I think uh, have a lot of overlap and aren't um, kind of placed together as often as they could be, which is like comic books and music and punk rock. There's, you know, a lot of people who love comics, absolutely love music and vice versa. It's good idea. Good for them. 10 out of 10.
4: (laughs) Definitely.
3: So you're not, you're not huge Scott fans, but you guys were, not able to play music, and you're dealing with the stress and the emotion of the pandemic, you get together and play ska. And play ska. How did that feel? Was it? Did it feel great? Oh yeah,
5: it felt so good. Um, I mean, like I said, like it was really hard. Like I didn't play drums for many months because it was just really, really hard to kind of like tap into those feelings when your whole life just like falls out from under you like that. It's like, it's music and playing in my case, playing drums is so much more for me than just uh, kind of like a hobby or something that I can do when I want to have fun. So it wasn't like I could just like pick up some drumsticks and be like, let me just play, play along to a song. So just having like a project, having like a reason to play, was just super super exciting and to have something that was i don't know not uh you know it's kind of lighthearted in a way you know it's just like it's just like it's supposed to be fun it's supposed to make you feel good uh it just that just felt like the exactly what i needed at that moment
3: yeah i play drums too um i mean i was more active when i was younger but once i was started playing in bands like before i was in a band i would practice in my room on a pad but once I was playing in a band, like I wanted to play as often as possible. But I'd never played alone anymore. I was always playing with people. Like I feel like as a drummer, it's not the same thing. Like guitarists can sit and work on songs and stuff, but it's kind of weird to be drumming by yourself.
5: Yeah, I was just I was just doing it earlier today. I <laughs> right before this interview, I have like a little practice set up, and I play along to our stuff and especially like new new songs working through them but but like i said that's like a project you know that's something i have to work towards if we're going to record some new songs i can be like how can i make this particular fill or this particular moment really really work and try out a few things before i bring them to practice but you know month three of a pandemic i'm not just going to sit down and be like let me play a song off of our third album and see how, how it goes. <laughs> yeah. Actually the way the way I started playing drums again, I, I gave myself a project before we even started um uh rehearsing again, which was to try to learn to play reggae drums, because I had always loved the way that, you know, reggae players play and it's such a different instrument. It's like I feel like I refer to it as the same way that there's a violin and a fiddle like they're physically the same object but it really dictates how you're going to play it in an entirely different way and that's that's how i feel about the way reggae drummers play so i kind of uh, took a number of months and you know not doing anything great but like dug into um uh the barrett brothers and kind of really figured out what was going on with those complex hi-hat patterns and stuff, which I didn't even really think about to this moment. It's funny that the first thing that we did afterwards was play ska.
4: (laughs) So do you think some of that that ska and reggae feel is going to bleed into new songs?
5: I mean, on our last record, we had um, a song that it's kind of like developed into a slight sort of reggae kind of... um, vibe to it and then we did a remix and had uh some friends of ours who rap like do some verses on it and so it's been there in the past and I mean when we get together and jam we'll like we'll do like little reggae jams here and there.
6: Jarrett we're not we forgot to even talk about the funk soundtrack.
4: <laughs> oh tell us about the funk soundtrack.
6: That was probably the most upstrokes I've ever played in my whole life. <laughs> But I guess that wasn't really Ska.
5: I think there was about, I think there's one song on there that you could consider Ska for sure, because we were like, let's play this, let's play this funk song, but like, let's play it really fast. And then it just sort of became Ska because that's what we were, <laughs> that was like our reference point.
6: <laughs> I don't remember. It was a, a friend of ours was doing like a student film and they needed a band to do the soundtrack for their student film. It was like one of the first projects we ever did together that, like physically manifested into a thing that you could watch or bring home and listen to. Uh, and what do we do? Like f- five songs or something? We just made up some stuff that we thought sounded funky. Also another uh, genre of music I know literally nothing about. So I just had like a wah pedal and played upstrokes. That was kind of Sky-ish.
3: Yeah.
6: We'll, i really... We'll take it. Po- I'm like... <laughs> Really, just grasping for strands here.
3: (laughs) (laughs) But so, the song you were referring to was uh, "Step Outside," right? How that's got kind of a little—it's
5: got some, it got some flickers, some upbeat flickers. Chris, what's the what's the song from All at Once?
6: "End of My Bloodline." There it is. But "Step Outside" could definitely have some ska stuff going on. I hear what you're hearing.
3: Also, like when I listen to Ugly, there's uh, definitely a few songs like "Expire." um rotten apple maybe where i kind of feel like i was listening to it i was going like is this upbeats was this intended to be upbeats or you know i i have no idea what you guys were thinking when you were wow
6: ska is a really expansive genre for you
3: <laughs>
6: i appreciate that i'd like to think that when you listen to music everything just goes through like a weird ska filter
4: not too far off yeah, yeah so
6: regardless <laughs> of what it, like you're listening to napalm death and you're like, "Oh, interesting." Like,
3: Interesting. I get the
4: undercurrent. (laughs) (laughs) We'll be right back after this
7: BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See betmgm.com for terms. Twenty-one plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call one eight hundred GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in
2: Washington D.C. Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast.
0: Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo twenty twenty four. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified?
1: We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup.
2: Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Your guitar playing in
3: general, I think, is um, really interesting because... I feel like you create a lot of space and uh, you also play with rhythm a lot in this really unique way. So I don't know, like, you know, to, to think of it in terms of upbeats, it's probably more just that, that the the way you, you treat space and rhythm. I'm just kind of curious about your thought process behind that as a guitar player in general.
6: Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think when we first started playing music together, um, I just kind of, went with my gut and didn't think about it too much. Um, And now when I uh, come up with riffs or like rhythm guitar stuff, I usually put a little more thought into it in terms of how will this serve the vocal melody that might be on top of it? How does this interact with the bass and the drums? Um, So I definitely think about what I'm playing from that angle more um, often in my older age. Um, But when we first started playing, I didn't have a goddamn thought in my head. I was just like, what notes fit over all these notes? And then if it sounded good, I signed off on it.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And it's interesting because All At Once actually seems, some of your guitar decisions almost seem more like standard riffs in a way than the earlier stuff. I mean, it's still uniquely you guys, but so, like a song like Glass House almost like has this rock riff that is, is almost more just like a straightforward rock riff in a way where I listen to the old stuff and it just sounds so all over the place. And it's just in this cool way.
6: Yeah, you're you're right. It was all over the place, at least for me.
5: <laughs> I think that we used to. um really just like write all the instrumentation first and then pack on the vocals later, which we still do to an extent, but now we like try to save a little bit of room for the melody since that's the part of music that most people pay pay the most attention to. It's kind of an important piece. So rather than thinking about it last uh, or we try to give it a, a little bit more thought, but so early, early on, you know, I, I think it's an effect of, like, playing basement shows and stuff where the PAs kind of, like, suck and you probably can't hear the vocals anyway. We just, like, wanted to, as a three-piece, just take up all of that space. So there's just, like, a ton of rhythms. There's a ton of, uh, you know, bass and guitar, you know, interplay. It's not just, like, Mike's plunking away back there, like... He's playing melodies as well. Marissa's playing lead lines. Mike's playing lead lines. <laughs> you know, we got two lead uh, a lead guitar and a lead bass going. And then somehow on top of that, let's try to put some uh, vocals on there. So I think just over time, we've tried to consider the vocals a little a little bit more. Um, but not like I'd go back and change the old things. Just to have something something else to think about, you know?
3: I like how it sounds like, you know, you have three members... And you guys are sort of competing with each other, but also sort of working in harmony as well. You know, that's that's kind of what the the older stuff sounds like to me, where it's like you're you're feeding off each other, but you're also like you got your own thing, and it, so at times it's like almost creates this dissonance.
6: Yeah, I think that like we, um, I think that we all learned, at, we all had experience playing with other people prior to Screaming Females, but for the most part, Screaming Females has been the only band that the three of us have been in for for the most part, with the exception of like a a few projects here and there. Uh, So we definitely learned how to play with other people together. You know what I mean? Um, And uh, learning how to play with other people is really hard. And I think you can probably hear some of that struggle, be it good or bad in the earlier recordings, like, so you might hear this rubbing or dissonance or be like, oh, well, that's a that's a really weird compositional decision to make. That's a really weird melody decision to make. But we were kind of just like figuring stuff out and continue to try to figure stuff out. Not really sure what we're trying to get to the bottom to, but of bottom of. But.
5: Well, that actually reminds me of just thinking about the selector, because you guys, everybody was talking about on, on my radio, having like these kind of pretty weird chorus decisions and etc and i feel like by the first record they kind of worked a lot of that out and like the first record most of those songs on there don't really have that same sort of uh, strange kind of time signature and falsetto moments happening and whatever so i I don't know like i was more familiar with i mean obviously i knew on my radio but um i own like too much pressure and listen to that album a whole bunch of times so when Marissa suggested on my radio and I went back and listened to it, I was like, man, I forgot the song is so weird considering it's their, I think it's their first single or definitely came out before the first record. But I think that, you know, other bands have that same experience that we did, which is that you get together, you have like some good ideas, you have some weird ideas. And as you do it, you figure it out.
3: Yeah. Well, I feel like that, that, that dissonant harmony element has sort of been like almost like what defines screaming females the screaming female sound like rather than change it you've just worked within that parameter and continued to perfect that rather than moving away from it
5: yeah i mean it's if you play all the right notes all the time then you can only do uh stock stuff
6: so now yep. then you sound like follow boy and it's sweet as hell <laughs> And then you get like so famous and you buy like everyone you've ever loved, a house and a horse. (laughs) And life's great. (laughs) We've really just been sabotaging ourselves this entire time.
4: Yeah, Marissa, do you know who loves Ska?
6: Every member of Fall Out Boy.
4: Well, Patrick Stump.
6: Oh, yeah, of course he does. I think Jared and I tried to listen to his... What was the genre he was trying to create? I don't remember. He went solo and he like tried to create a genre it was like soul punk or something
5: oh
4: that doesn't sound good
6: it was not good but we tried
5: <laughs> but we have to we have to mention here that we are actually big fall out boy fans so oh yeah from, from under the cork tree was like a staple tour staple for many years including the first time we went to europe which was like a very long tour after having been on a very long tour in the us we went straight to europe and uh, our first van had like a thing to plug an iPod onto, but then that van broke down, and our second one only had a CD player, and the only CD that we had with us was Fallout Boy, so we listened to it like three times a day when we got tired of like you know Croatian radio or whatever.
4: How long was that whole tour?
5: Everything all included was a uh, hundred and I think I forget what it was. It was something like. In 114 days, we played like 104 shows, something like that. That's brutal. <laughs> so long. <laughs> and
6: Fallout Boy got us through
4: all of it. Thanks, Fallout Boy.
5: <laughs> so, next time you talk to Patrick, you can tell him that it won't matter at all to him. But it matters to me.
4: What do you think would be better, uh, that, that Soul Punk album or a Patrick Stump ska solo album?
6: I mean, he has the voice of an angel. So, like, you know, I, I don't want to poo poo his solo effort Soul punk. it wasn't it just wasn't for me but the singing like wow that guy has some pipes yeah but i'm just more of a fallout boy kind of guy you know i want to hear those i got gotcha. you. those heavy riffs <laughs> that only fallout yeah. boy can provide <laughs> i think he would make a great ska record if you yeah when you talk to him inevitably
4: oh we have We've talked to him.
6: Oh, okay. We'll call him again.
4: We'll call him again and let him know that Marissa from Screaming Females wants the Scott
5: album to come
6: Don't out. name drop the band. He'll already know who I am. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let him know.
5: Well, I, I keep seeing on Twitter, you know, like uh, Cat Bite is really trying to back up Large and Grace for something. So, like, maybe they could just step in and be the, the studio band for Patrick. I think it would work perfectly.
4: That'd be great if Cat Bite just went around and was just the backup band for all these already established singers <laughs> like ska bands. I,
5: I think we're onto something.
4: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
3: Do you want to make a Sky album? <laughs> Call Cat Bite.
6: <laughs> well, wasn't that a thing? That must that must have happened. Like uh, those compilations that were like really popular in the early aughts, like um, like Pop Goes Punk or whatever. That like. Mm-hmm. That that must, like, people must have funneled a lot of music through a Ska filter and put it out on a compilation at some point, right?
5: Yeah, it has to have happened.
6: If this hasn't happened, then we just thought of the most, the smartest, we just had the most smart thought.
5: I mean, this has to exist. There has to be, like, uh, Ska does, like, you know, pop hits or something. That has to exist. 100%.
3: Well, there is Skatoo Network. Um, oh, yeah. Jeremy
5: does the goes Emo and stuff like
3: there that. There you go. Yeah, yeah, it's actually happening right
5: now, Marissa. That's <laughs>
6: <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking of the Steve Ferris cover of "Come On Eileen," and I'm like, have have they? Yeah, has there been a compilation of similar sonic efforts? I sure hope so.
3: So, before Screaming Females, Marissa, you were in a band with Mike called Surgery of TV. Is that correct?
6: Yeah, Surgery on TV, like when you watch Surgery on TV.
3: is that the is that the first band or did you have bands before that
6: no that was that was it that was our first band yeah
3: and then how soon until jared joined and it became screaming females
6: um surgery on tv lasted for about 10 months and then um we kind of fell apart um I went to college and that's where I met Jarrett. And uh, I won't tell you the long, boring story because it's just not super interesting. But once I found out that Jarrett played drums, I invited him to play with uh, Mike and I and our uh, friend Chris Bobbins, who has the best name and also um, was in surgery on TV. Um, So Jarrett was in surgery on TV for like only like three or four practices and we were going to play a show somewhere in South Jersey where I'm sure a ska band was also going to play. Um <laughs> I'm certain of it. And and uh it, it never happened and then the keyboard player went to college and once he left, um it, it was just the three of us and um writing music and hanging out just seemed to to come easily and so we just continued to to do that, and we we decided to change the band name, but um, that that's the short version of the story. Actually, I, Jared, the, correct me if I'm wrong. The assistant principals were basically a ska band, right? Uh no, no, okay, surf more surf.
5: Yes, they were they a surf band.
6: They, they were a band that we played with a lot uh, when we first started playing. Very ska influenced.
5: Yeah, a hundred percent. Like, uh, you know, if there was different generations of of. People that would come through New Brunswick. And the kind of like, I was a few years older than Marissa. Marissa's a few years older than Mike. And then, kind of like right after Mike's generation, the next group of people were all from South Jersey, from the same zone that uh, these system principals were from. And every single one of those people, when they got to New Brunswick, um, had been in Ska Bands. <laughs> and uh, they were like the next uh, generation of people who were playing music. Uh, in New Brunswick. And, um, one of them, uh, I mean, I'm still good friends with a lot of those people. But one of them still is a very good friend of mine. And he's the one who kept, you know, uh, over the course of the early in the pandemic, we would be on zoom or whatever, hanging out you He'd be like, dude, you got to check out all these new ska bands. They're just amazing, dude.
3: <laughs> Aside from cat who who is he, uh, introducing you to, uh,
5: just like all the stuff from bad, bad, what's it bad time. Right. And, uh, I mean, we know Greg, who does community records, like, really well. He's been, he's helped us out for years in New Orleans. And um, Greg, uh, his band Bad Operation, they, uh, like, I don't know, Greg's just, I think it's really cool because right now, you know, uh, Ska has this kind of resurgence of, of cool happening. But Greg, in doing community records, he's been putting out Ska and bands in, like, uh you know, booking ska bands on festivals that he was running and stuff the whole time he's been doing that and i feel like a lot of people might have considered that like oh they're just like oh you're really gonna put a ska, ska band on this bill and to greg it was just like yeah that's cool they're cool they're a great band and i don't know i feel like there's people like greg out there just like in the diy community who just did a lot of good work and are just like not phased by what the current trend is in punk or diy or whatever and just are, are are set on letting cool bands play good shows so just giving greg a shout out
6: you never have new wave or punk without reggae and ska
5: 100 percent, definitely
6: i think people who understand that and kind of the history of new wave also understand that even though some people might perceive ska as being cheesy it's an integral part of uh that the kind of you know quilt that is punk rock
3: you guys tweeted like three years ago uh, a picture of Pauline Black and said that nothing like couldn't get over how cool um two-tone ska was
5: yeah that's that was uh it wasn't the first time I watched Dance Craze but it was like uh another time that I watched it and was just like oh Man, and then right after that, right around the same time period, I watched, um, I think it's called Story of Skinhead, which is a Don Letts documentary. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I've seen that too, yeah. And her stuff in that just made me, I was just like, wow, this, not only is she just such an amazing performer in those live footage, you're just like, holy shit, like she is just controlling the room and just the most exciting thing you've ever seen while also just looking cool as hell. because you know, everybody knows, like, how the two-tone bands would dress and whatever, and they look really cool. But then, like, you know, imagine doing that while sweating your ass off, and then but still, like, looking great. And then, aside from all of that, she had to deal with literal Nazis showing up to her shows, screaming stuff at her, you know? And she's just talking about, in that in that documentary, just talking about, very matter-of-factly, like, oh, Nazis show up, we're just done, we're not playing. And she's like, you know, and then they'd have to send some representative who was a kid who's like, oh, like, I'm not really like one of those skinheads, but I like know those dudes. And, and like, I swear they're not going to like mess the show up, like, whatever. And Pauline was just like, you just got to tell your friends to leave and we'll go play. Like, we're ready. We're here to play, but I'm not playing for them. And I was just like, damn, like, all of that put together, that is some shit. Like, I feel like there's not many people right now who have had to run that situation
3: yeah i mean you know aside from a couple bands like like the equals and stuff like that um there wasn't a whole lot of like uh, mixed race bands in england at the time so it was aside from the mixture of music the visual look of two-tone was striking you know if some people loved it some people were offended by it so so the the band's You know, they knew that there was some risk going on stage because of it.
5: Yeah. And just the way they're talking about in that documentary, just about how, like, even though it doesn't make any sense, they're like the some of the National Front skins loved ska. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But yeah, that's just like, I mean, fascism in general is just like inherently. Uh, an incoherent ideology. Like you can't actually make it make sense.
3: Stupid.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Like
3: trying to make sense out of racism. I know it doesn't go anywhere.
5: (laughs) But you would think, and I think it, you know, for the most part, you know, you get the rock against racism and stuff by bringing people together, having Elvis Costello and Steel Pulse and the specials all play in the shame show. And you bring out all these different communities, Caribbean communities, uh, English working class communities together, generally that does the right thing. But then somehow you end up with national front fascist skinheads who are just like my favorite genre of music is ska.
3: <laughs> I think cause you know, you have, um, the, the national front, the kids that were involved with that, uh, they were radicalized by a specific ideology. So I think that's why like maybe most kids will be like, They're not radicalized. Maybe they grew up with ignorant parents, but they see representation of bands of of different races on stage. So that affects them. So they're open to it. But I think once you're radicalized, it doesn't really matter. It's like you've been brainwashed and you have to be unbrainwashed.
5: I mean, who knows? You had like Eric Clapton was on stage being like England for the English, like backing essentially like the forefathers of the national front. While playing Bob Marley covers like what the fuck it, Like like before that playing just essentially ripping off uh, Amer like African American music, you know, blues music. So like none of it makes any sense. I don't know. Why did how could Eric Clapton grow up being obsessed with the blues and play, you know, finding out about reggae having a massive hit playing a reggae song and be like, you know, it's really bad for England people from the caribbean it doesn't make any sense
3: yeah it's strange yeah so um i read that in the early part of the band screaming females that um you got tinnitus and then that kind of made you unable to play or unable to play very often and um you used that time to read our band could be your life this is a true story
5: yeah it was actually wasn't it was tendonitis Oh, was it tendonitis? Yeah. Oh, okay. So it was in my elbow and it was really, really bad, like to the point where I could barely move my arm. Um, and yeah, it was just kind of devastating. It was like, I had never really been in a band before. I had jammed with people for years and I had kind of even given up on the concept of ever being in like a real band. I was mainly just like hanging out with bands I thought were cool around New Brunswick. So then Marissa asked me to play, and I was just like, "Oh my god, this is amazing! I love what you know Mike and Marissa are doing." And almost immediately, I get this tendonitis in my elbow that like barely let my arm move. And I was just like, "Oh, I'm gonna have to call them and tell them," and they're gonna be like, "Oh, well, it was cool. We've been playing together for three months. We're gonna find somebody whose arm moves to play drums." And uh, it was like I was completely nerve wracked making that phone call. And Marissa's like, "Ah." it's cool. We'll let it heal up and we'll figure it out. And it just was really special moment for me.
3: Did it develop because of playing drums or was it some other incident happened?
5: Um, I don't really know it. Uh, I've had major tendon issues since I was a teenager. Um, and you know, it's like this, what's this month's tendon issue. It's like behind my knee currently. I don't know why. It's just a problem that I have. And that was just a particularly terrible case, uh, a couple years ago i had this thing uh you know how every like tendon injury has like a common name like you know you have the like, tennis elbow and this or that i had one on my thumb known as uh mommy thumb
6: <laughs> don't tell people about your mommy thumb dude are you nuts? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yay, yay. <laughs>
5: so so yeah there's always like little uh triggers to these things but there's stuff that normal people probably would have done and it wouldn't have given them a six-month injury
3: <laughs> wow so but um did you did you spend that time reading our band could be your life and become obsessed with Minutemen as i have read is that true
5: yeah yeah um i you know i i grew up playing a lot of music with my friends and we would go into new york uh because i grew up in north jersey we go into new york to see bands play and so in my mind, you know, if you were a small band, you'd play Irving Plaza to uh, 1,400 people.
6: <laughs> it's a little indie rock show.
5: Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's funny because looking back on that, I'm like, those bands probably played in Kansas to 200 people. But in my mind, I was like, if you are a band that anyone knows, you play to at least 1,000 people. That's just everywhere. <laughs> uh, so when I first started hanging out in New Brunswick, uh, when my friends who were a couple years older than me, I was still in high school, I went to a party and they were in a band and they're like, our band's playing the party. And I showed up and I walked downstairs and I had to like walk by a band that was playing because they were playing right next to the stairs and they were just like the coolest band I'd ever seen in my life. I just couldn't believe that there was a band playing to 50 people in a packed basement and I had to walk by them and there was no stage and it just kind of blew my mind. Um, so from then on, I was just like hanging out with local bands, trying to just do that. A bunch of those bands moved to New York because that was right around the time that, you know, bands like the Yeahs and the Strokes were getting really big. And they all moved to New York or L.A. to try to kind of like make it, et cetera. None of that worked out. Um, so then I was back in New Brunswick. Now, my favorite bands didn't live in town anymore. and. uh that was right around the time that this band, the, the Ergs started playing in New Brunswick a lot. And what they did was they changed it from just having, um, and it wasn't just them in particular, but the scene that developed around them. It's in New Brunswick. It was always just college parties that bands might play and college parties get started at 10 PM at the earliest. So if you're having a band play at 1130, it's like a good chance. The cops are going to show up and give you a ticket and kick everybody out. Um, but the Urgs were bringing bands through from out of town and they uh you couldn't have a band coming from Milwaukee and tell them that you might be able to get to play. So all the shows started starting at like 6 p.m. And this is just suddenly I was introduced to the idea. Oh, wow. There's people all around the country who are kind of doing that stuff that I got really into in Brunswick. And then. So when I had the injury and I read Our Bancu Your Life and I was now living with some of the people who were involved in that scene and buying, you know, kind of older punk records. I had, you know, gotten some who's Du records and stuff like that. But then I read Our Bank of your life and it like connected all this stuff in my mind. And I just kept reading the book over and over again where I was just like, Oh, like bands were doing this stuff then as well and i know it sounds obvious now but like this is kind of before all like the internet and it was easy to access all this stuff and that's why that book was so important to so many people it's because you're just like oh wait this like connects so many threads like somebody had to be the first band to tour without like a massive you know force behind them and like black flag doing that the minutemen doing that to do doing that like butthole surfers getting out there and doing whatever the hell they were doing uh it just reading that book just like I was like oh we're part of a history now like so that's why I wanted to like say all that is that started out for me as just I found a band two bands playing in New Brunswick and couldn't believe it and then a few years later it's like the urgs are bringing bands from Milwaukee and California like you know San Pedro and places like that to come Gainesville to come play and you're like wow there's bands all over the country doing this and then You read our Bank of Your Life, and you're like, oh, wait, there's generations of bands doing this.
3: Yeah, for sure. We'll be right back after this.
0: Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified?
1: We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup.
0: Call
2: four two three six six seven seven eight seven seven, and tell us who we should check out. It's the what podcast Thanks
3: So in those early days, um when you were kind of a New Brunswick basement band, like what where Where would you be playing and and who were some of your contemporaries in town?
6: Um, we played at this house called the parlor a lot. That's where our first show was. Um, we played at Jarrett's house, which never really had a name. It was just the address. <laughs> um, we, uh, I moved into a show house my senior year, had a lot of shows. Um, uh, there were, but yeah, there were, there were, it, it was interesting. Uh, the houses, if they lasted long enough would kind of develop little personalities of their own and usually cater to like certain genres. So like, there were some houses that primarily would have hardcore shows. And then there was like a house on Plum Street that pretty much only had like avant-garde, like noise performances. And then my house was like a bunch of freaked out art students. So we would kind of have like, like weird electro clash kind of stuff come through. Um, and, but the parlor I think was really like the anchor of, I mean, and, you know, I'm saying this because it was a very uh, pl- important place near and dear to my heart that the parlor and, and the house uh, literally a block away called Meat Town USA. I feel like we're the two kind of like anchors of our time spent in New Brunswick and probably had the most shows um, that I went to the most eclectic shows, the most like diverse group of people uh attending them while acknowledging all the while that it could have been way more diverse than it actually was. Um, yeah. Uh, those were some, just some of the houses that managed to kind of last for more than a blink of an eye.
5: And our first show was at the parlor was with the measure who uh, Lauren is still doing music as warriors. And this The split that we're doing, the record that's coming out with our selector cover on it actually has Warriors on the other side. So it's like literally 16 years later, we're still encountering um, people that we met at those houses and being able to work together.
3: Uh, Warriors is doing uh, Missions of Burma Song? Yeah, they're doing a
5: Mission of Burma Song, yeah.
3: Okay, nice. So I I take it you were really leaning heavy into house shows and and not so much like venue type shows in those early days.
5: I mean, we would play random venues. It would be like, oh, we're going to play like such and such bar and grill in like Boundbrook, New Jersey or something because somebody had a show going on there and we would go do it. But like we were really into trying to do all ages shows and there's just really not a lot of proper venues in New Jersey that had were able to do all ages shows. Uh, One of which that did exist was this place, Maxwell's in Hoboken, New Jersey, which was just unbelievable. I can't even can't even believe that it was real. It was a venue that fit 180 people with the best sound system in the world with a pretty good restaurant that would have like those same bands I'm talking about that would literally go play in New York and play to like one or two thousand people would play Maxwell's and you could just go see it. And it was all ages and it was a bar and it was just like. And they would let local bands play there as well, which there's like no shot you were going to be able to play. Like whatever band you could open for at Maxwell's, there was no way that a local band was going to be able to play with that same type of band in New York. It just wasn't going to happen. Um, So Maxwell's was like the kind of venue in New Jersey that we would play a lot that wasn't a house. It wasn't a DIY space.
6: Yeah. And Maxwell's is like iconic even to me when we were growing up because... Replacements played there.
5: Nirvana played there. bottle Surfers played there.
6: Yeah. And some and sometimes they would let underage kids in, depending. I, I don't know what the rules were for that. But so I actually got, you know, a few of the smaller club shows I got to go to, which were few and far in between, were at Maxwell's.
5: Yeah. The entire time we were going to shows, it was all ages there because it was a restaurant. So they could just be like, yeah, it's just a restaurant. Anybody can come in. I think before it was a restaurant in like the 80s, it might have been just a bar but our entire time going there it was all ages.
3: Any any uh any particular memories of of going to shows there that really stick out to either of you?
6: We the three of us went to go see Brian Jonestown Massacre right after Dig came out. Oh nice. And uh Anton, like I a lot of other people were coming um so Mike was like a huge Brian Jonestown fan at, before the documentary ever came out. He just like loved them in high school. They were his favorite band. They were like his big brother's favorite band. They were, they were like very important to him um and so we saw dig and then jared and i got into them and we were like let's go see them at maxwell's genuinely just wanting to see the band but i guess since the documentary had just come out it seemed like everyone else there was just there to hound anton to like antagonize him and so that's exactly what happened you know he got pissed off like kept walking on and off the stage and going over to the bar to do whatever the hell he was doing at the bar and I don't really remember what happened it just kind of like devolved into chaos we had to leave because I do believe that Mike had to go to high school the next day and I had to go to class or something and so we left but we heard later that uh, Brian Brian Jones and Massacre continued to play until they turned the lights off (laughs) and i felt bad for anton because like yeah like he's a volatile guy but he just wanted to play his songs and everyone in the audience just wanted to give him a bunch of you know a bunch of garbage
3: yeah i i feel bad for him i think brian's brian jones massacre is a brilliant band and yeah he is he is a volatile person but that movie also which i love but You know, when you when you take all of these moments of a person's life and put it together in in an hour, then it makes it seem like all you ever do is start shit. Yeah. When I'm sure that wasn't it was like wasn't every show like that. So, yeah, people came away from that movie thinking like, okay, every show, this guy starts something crazy and we're going to see something. And it was just I'm sure that was just horrible for him.
5: I mean, they they've had like a renaissance over the last few years where they're. Uh they're now bigger than they ever were, like they came and played Philly and sold out uh union transfer, which I think fits like two thousand people or something like at they're playing london they I saw um that they played London kind of like right before the uh pandemic, and it was sold out. It was like a gigantic theater, you know like three levels high, like old theater. I was like, man, it was pretty wild to see uh, all these years later.
3: That's because like he's a good songwriter and like he's very prolific. So I think once, once all that drama kind of fell away, people are left with this catalog of music, which is good. So you guys, you guys are, you guys are playing these kind of underground shows for a while, and then when you when you guys go to do Ugly, that's kind of the, that's kind of the album where you get a little bit more national
5: attention, right? Uh, I feel like our first national tour. Um, which we did this 70-day tour across the country. That's, like, when we really started to get our first national attention. And it was kind of, like, cumulative. Over the course of that tour, like, Jessica Hopper wrote an article about us on that tour when she saw us play in Chicago to, like, 10 people or something. And uh, and then right around the time we got home from that, we started playing. We did some shows with Throwing Muses and then shows with Dinosaur Jr. and uh people were writing about that and then we did a big tour with um the dead weather in uh, 2010 so that would have been the time that our album castle talk came, came out and there was a whole bunch of articles that were written on that it was a really big big tour um and i feel like ugly was kind of the culmination of that because Although those early records, I think, are really appropriate. I was just listening to some of them today, practicing along, but I think they sound really appropriate and cool. I think stepping it up and recording with Albini after we had had, you know, we put put out Ugly in 2012, I think. So we had already been a band for like seven years at that point. Um, so I think the culmination of all of that stuff, playing a bunch of national tours, getting some support slots, getting some recognition, when Ugly came out with, a really professional sound to it. Uh it was kinda just like the perfect moment for that stuff to really um to hit, you know? I mean, it's just what we've done as a band, but it's nothing it's like uh we're always trying to look to do something really cool and we work really hard. We just write songs, get out there, play shows and when people ask us to do stuff, like open a show for a band, we're ready to do because. We are. We've played for every kind of audience <laughs> imaginable, some of whom liked us, some of whom didn't. But we know we're not. We're not taking anything for granted. So I don't know. It's just like we're just. It's that. What, there's some saying about this where it's like a overnight sensation where you you spend your whole life preparing for it or something along those lines.
3: Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, like what people perceive to be an overnight success, is that there was ten years. building up to it by the by the artist that it would not have happened had that 10 years before not have been in place but i'd love to learn a little bit about um working with albini because i love the way ugly sounds and it sounds you know like you said it sounds more professional but he still keeps that punk rock dissonant sound to it it's not like a polished sound per se it's still it's it's still made for an audience that likes unique music. You know, it's not for pop audiences. Can you tell, can you speak a little bit about some of the um, the sonic decisions or, or conversations you had and and creating the, the sound of that record?
6: I don't think we actually really talked too much about um, much beyond just performing live and like wanting it to go through whatever Albini's kind of basic setup is for a three piece rock band. Like obviously he understood where we were coming from and we absolutely understood like where he was coming from and we're very familiar with his work and big fans of his work. So we were just kind of excited to be in his presence and, and be in his studio with the tools that he uses to make the great records that he makes. And um we just kind of, let him do his thing. You know, I, I I think he's not as hardline about this anymore, but he functions as an engineer and not as a producer. So we really didn't discuss like any uh, pro- real production aspects of these songs. You know, we had written them. They were done. We had a couple overdub ideas and, you know, vocal harmony ideas, and he was happy to accommodate us. But beyond that, he just kind of set up the mics that he thought would work well with our band and he hit record.
5: Mm. Yeah. One day he said, maybe this song could have a different snare drum on it. That was kind of <laughs> the extent. That was it.
6: <laughs> one, one thing that he, he did mention before, or he, he basically said, and probably said this a couple of times during the session is that it was very clear to him that we took the band very seriously. And that's why, um, he felt comfortable having us at electrical. And I think that he's, he's a person who he often talks about how he's not afraid to work as long as his clients are also not afraid to work and they take what they're doing seriously. If you're just going in there because he's Steve Albini and yada, 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 you're going to leave with like, you know, a record that cost a couple thousand dollars and not do anything with it. Maybe that's not a project he super, super duper wants to be a part of. I think, and I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm not, you know, putting words in his mouth. But like, I think he saw in us that like, we were going to go on tour and we took playing and writing music very seriously and we're still very good friends. So, Oh, nice. Yeah. I think he value yeah, he values us as kind of like almost like comrades, you know, <laughs> light lifer punks.
3: Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, the role of a producer or engineer is just to, um, let The band be and to let them know if they're doing a good take or a bad take and not get in the way or try to try to mess with what they've developed,
5: yeah. I mean, I think that that's his whole vibe. Like, he's generally, you know, if you ask him, if you're like, I'm sure at some point, uh, Maris was just like, I kind of wanted a different guitar sound on this song for the overdub, but I'm not really sure what it is, and he'd just be like, Try this guitar out, it sounds weird, uh, <laughs> and. But like his whole thing is that a band who's been playing together for you know years uh, and writing songs for months or years they know them a lot better than he does. <laughs> they know what their sound is a lot better than he does. So his thing is just to try to capture that. And I mean, he has a great equipment to do that and a uh, great space. Electrical is just like it's a designed studio. Most studios are are uh, put into buildings that were used that were meant for something else, but he built that space out to be a studio. So, I mean, you could take a look at it on their website. There's a drum room there, a live room that's enormous. And people are like, how do you get that Steve Albini drum sound? Well, you go set up a drum set in that room and you're like, oh, there it is. That's the yeah.
6: sound. <laughs> you set up your drums in an aquarium. <laughs> and then you take all the water out.
5: <laughs> yeah, take the water out first. That's <laughs> Well,
6: whatever.
3: I want to um, want to step back though. We we brushed over um, learning about Marissa. You you were a huge No Doubt fan. I, I want to hear about your history with No Doubt.
6: Um, I think a lot of uh, female identifying people my age probably have just had a really similar experience growing up and and getting to watch um, No Doubt be on the on TV a lot. They were very popular. They're all over the radio. Don't Speak was like a monolithic hit. Um, And I had just started getting into rock music. Um, The music I really liked was Nirvana. And I really liked Pearl Jam and the Smashing Pumpkins. And a lot of those bands, even at that point, were defunct, but no doubt still existed. So that was very exciting. And also, no doubt, um, had a lady in the band. And that was exciting to me, too, because I uh, hadn't seen of such a thing <laughs> at that yeah. age, um, and you know, songs like "Just a Girl" when you are a thirteen year old um, can can be really powerful um, to hear. And it didn't it didn't hurt that the entire album is also perfect. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> and uh every song is really really good so that was also like a plus um and then i uh yeah i love tragic kingdom it was it's and it's still probably one of my favorite records i just think through and through it's a really cool album and the, it, even on that record they they really kind of like experiment with a whole bunch of different genres and i execute it like pretty masterfully i think it was her brother who did a lot of the the writing on that album but correct me if i'm wrong
3: um the brother had
6: he's one of the keyboard he was
3: either he wrote some of the songs i think he either left right before or he left in that period of time so yeah he did actually that was tragic kingdom is where gwen stepped up and started writing songs so there's a yeah because they
6: he was a backup singer right
3: um i think so yeah um yeah. So that's where you get a blend of like there's some of his songs left over, there's some of Gwen's songs. There's different people are contributing to that record, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah they
6: definitely had a good balance on that one. Yeah, I I even while celebrating that record at its peak, I I never th- considered myself to be a fan of Ska. Um I just was like, This band rocks. They're one of the bands I like. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't firing on all pistons at that point yet.
3: So when you go on the road, I don't when when you go on the road next. Are you going to bring on the radio with you as one of the songs you play?
6: Um, we haven't talked about it. Uh, it's not nothing is ever completely off the table.
5: All right. Generally, we haven't uh, it's covers that we've done. We haven't really played them after they came out live. They were kind of always fun to play as like a surprise, like as we were learning a song, uh, getting ready to maybe record it for something. We'd play it. People like, oh, man, I know that song, which is what, Mar- what Marissa always says about covers. You know, everybody freaks out because they're like, oh, I know this one. <laughs> and uh,
6: Yeah, people love when they know the song. <laughs>
5: so i don't know this is kind of backwards for us but you know it's uh it's an unprecedented era so maybe we'll do some unprecedented things and play the song after the fact
3: <laughs> if you guys play it i guarantee you it'll kill though oh yeah, yeah. for sure yeah
6: because people love hearing songs they already know <laughs> <laughs> and ska and ska especially ska and i'm one of those people
3: Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the show wherever you normally download podcasts. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. It's at In Defense of Scott. You can also sign up for my newsletter at Aaroncarnes.substack.com. You will get the podcast sent directly to your inbox every Wednesday. In defense of ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week, so you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has a great band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor Chris Reeves has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And on that note, we leave you by saying Ska now more than ever. Thank you.